Once again, welcome to the Sheila Kama Executive Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Jesse Ovaya. Jesse is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Windsor in Canada. His research is about the political economy of oil, gas, and mining, focusing on local content policies and industrial development. He is the author of the Petro Development State in Africa, published in 2016 and has worked as a consultant for institutions such as the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and the Natural Resource Governance Institute in New York. Jesse, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, it's nice to join you again. That's lovely. So, you know, I, I know you have uh, an interest in this subject of uh, resource nationalism as it relates to the extractives. And I, I just thought I'd uh, start by asking you to give us your definition or your understanding of the definition of resource nationalism. Sure, yeah. So I think to me, resource nationalism is, is about asserting national control over natural resources to ensure that the extractive industries are uh, carrying out their activities in the national interest and for the benefit of all citizens. So that's that's what I would say the def, you know, a, a simple definition is. Aha. Uh -huh. So so you see that the phenomena really revolves around pursuit of national interest through development of extractives. And, and, and that when the government asserts itself and says, here and now we will do everything in our power and design policies to ensure that we extract value, but do so for the benefit of the country. That to you is what represents a resource nationalism. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So would it be fair then uh, that unlike some who may perceive uh, resource nationalism uh, negatively, that uh, you, you hold a different view? You, you don't think that uh, it is something to uh, be critical of? I think that's fair, yeah. I mean, I think we can think of resource nationalism as having come in a few different waves historically. There was a wave of resource nationalism that was all about the nationalization of foreign corporations, you know, in the 1970s. And then I think what we've seen from, you know, maybe the mid to late 2000s coinciding with what was basically a decade of uh, a commodity price boom was something that was different and in my view not not at all negative the 1970s you know had this uh, wave of resource nationalism that i think was negative uh, not necessarily because the idea was a bad one that countries should assert control over their natural resources but because the consequences for uh, uh, economic development were negative it didn't bring about better developmental outcomes so you know in the 80s and 90s, it encouraged uh, um, uh, countries to go in the opposite direction, creating very highly favorable environments for foreign direct investment uh, in oil, gas, and mining. But that didn't work out either because there just there wasn't uh, enough benefit to the countries and to the to the citizens. So, I mean, a foreign direct investment on its own is not a good. It's only a public good if it's if it's developmental. And uh, there are a lot of negative impacts from the extractive industries so and citizens are negatively affected by them and they see that companies are are making profit and doing well and so resource nationalism is is basically like them saying you know hey this is 
our land. And uh, if you're going to take our resources, you can't leave us here in poverty. Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, let's go back to the uh, resource nationalism that was experienced uh, uh, in the 70s, plus or minus, and, and maybe spend a moment explaining why uh, that was different. Was it different because, and undesirable because ideologically the point of departure was flawed, or was it um, uh, undesirable and uh, perhaps uh, not as positive as it could have been because of execution. What was it about that resource nationalistic uh, behavior that you deem not as positive as what currently pertains? Yeah, so my, my, uh, I think I'm most uh, familiar with the experience of Nigeria, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak about that first. And I think it's not that the idea is flawed because a lot of countries have exercised the right of nationalization at different points and for different reasons. But the main issue is that uh, the state at that point, you know, whether it's the Nigerian state or whether it's a, um, um, a state in Southern Africa that was uh, mining, didn't have the capacity to run these uh, operations on their own. And so kicking out the, the companies involved wasn't developmental in the end. It, 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 you know, it didn't lead to these, uh, um, to these resources being extracted in a way that was beneficial. It, it, you know, it led to mismanagement. It led to um, um, companies you know, languishing and, uh, and uh, it, you know, there, there, a, new need, a new path was needed. And uh, I think that trying to pursue local content, trying to work with uh, companies to improve the terms of uh, the fiscal terms of their agreements, that's an expression of resource nationalism that is, uh, you know, a little more palatable and uh, that uh, really is just expressing a more basic need for, for development. That's how I would put it. So staying uh, with Nigeria then, so, you know, Nigeria had the indigenization uh, policies in the 70s and before. Uh, now yeah. we have uh, uh, citizen participation with uh, Nigerian entrepreneurs uh, acquiring uh, oil fields and companies and shares otherwise held uh, previously by foreigners. Uh, is, is, is the latter what you deem positive and if so, what is positive about that? What are the desirable developmental outcomes that you perceive in the current dispensation in Nigeria, for instance? Yeah, it's, it's not so much the ownership by Nigerians. It's more whether the economic activities that are value adding are conducted in country. So, you know, I, I wrote an article about Nigeria called indigenization versus domiciliation. And I argued that the focus of uh, policy needs to be not on who owns the companies, but on whatever company is, is operating, um, you know, they need to be doing more of their economic activities in country. And uh, yeah, they, I think, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was uh, going to, uh, you know, comment on that distinction between whether ownership per se translates into economic value, much less uh, 
uh, development outcomes or whether or not it's really the conduct of the investors, local or not, uh, and the extent to which uh, they add value, which makes a difference. So, so I'm interested in you pursuing that uh, line of thinking a bit more. Yeah, there, there certainly may be um, a benefit in local ownership in terms of having national control over a particular sector or a particular industry. I can see how various countries, you know, wealthy and, and, uh, and, and poor might, might want that. But from a development perspective, what I'm mostly interested in is, is definitely whether the company is foreign or, uh, or, or locally owned, that they are, um, you know, um, adding value in country, that they are, you know, they have manufacturing facilities, they, they are employing people, they are paying taxes. Those are, in my view, the things that, that matter. And uh, uh, often um, in the mining industry, there's been a tendency to give big tax holidays and, and you know, very favorable investment um, um, uh, concessions to foreign companies. And, and I think resource nationalism in part has come about because uh, you know, there's a, been a reaction to that and, uh, and to people seeing that uh, these companies are, are profiting without really giving back to those communities. So uh, what you say makes sense, uh, Jesse, but some people argue that uh, resource uh, nationalism is really just a trade protectionism by uh, another name. Do you agree? Um, I think that I can appreciate why someone might think that. And on the whole, I think that freer trade is, is preferable to trade protectionism. But I just, I think there are certain circumstances where government either needs to step in and regulate an industry to ensure certain public goods are achieved, or where they need to protect certain industries and sectors, you know, in the national interest. And uh, free trade on the whole does make everybody wealthier, but the benefit is obviously very unevenly distributed. So one of those times where government might net need to step in is when they see that the benefit is being uh, unequally distributed. And in the case of the extractive industries, we have uh, uh, an industry that operates in a given territory, negatively impacts the people that are living there, and so I think government needs to step in and say, well, we have to ensure that there is a benefit for these people. You know, that's our job as the government. Um, but I also think that there's an argument that maybe this isn't really about trade protectionism at all. And, you know, an, an economist will tell you that uh, you don't earn profits from natural resources. You earn rents because uh, natural resources come from the land and they aren't uh, manufactured commodities. And, you know, in, in most countries in the world, they're owned by the government who manages them on behalf of the people. And the government didn't make those resources either. Uh, so, so selling them or selling the rights to them, uh, the government has a responsibility to make sure that they get value for them. And if they are open to foreign investment, which I think they should be, they still need to ensure that those rents are shared between the investors and the people. And, and uh, that maybe that's protectionism, but maybe that's just what anybody would do that is acting in their own self-interest. 
Mm. So you see then uh, resource nationalism in that context as the state basically adjudicating between benefits that uh, can legitimately uh, accrue to the investor and those that ought to accrue to the citizens. Is, is that, is that uh, about right? Yes, yeah, that, that's, you know, they, they play a role in, in negotiating these agreements and hopefully uh, they the rents, the royalties and the taxes that they, uh, they get in those agreements are, are going to compensate for uh, any, you know, any negative impacts and allow, you know, um, citizens to benefit from, from, these, from these resources as well. So, oh, I mean, in that sense then, uh, Jesse, what then is the difference uh, between the state merely enforcing uh, taxation and other, uh, if you wish, regulatory uh, requirements like environmental protection, etc. Why, why is doing that in the context of extractives ending this labor resource nationalism, wherein presumably the state does that anyway with manufacturing and agriculture? Where do we draw the line between natural resources and other industries in which the state would still uh, play that role of adjudicating? Yeah, I mean, I think that the major difference for me is that resource extraction has these uh, negative impacts on on the communities that host the extraction, and um, uh, you know, my research has mainly been on you know, uh, oil communities in the Niger Delta or in in, in uh, Ghana, in uh, in the western region of Ghana. And you know, people there are are having trouble with uh, um, their you know traditional activities, whether they're farming or or fishing, and they often blame the oil companies, and uh, and you know they see these they know somebody is getting very wealthy from these extractive activities, and they know it isn't them, right? So that's why they're looking for more jobs, uh, they're looking for uh, um, more investment in their communities. They, they want to benefit in sustainable ways from, from those resources over the, over the long term while they're being extracted. And, and when you know, that frustration becomes hopefully positively channeled into an expression of resource nationalism, it can, you know, otherwise the consequences can be negative uh, in a much greater extent. They can, there can be a lot of conflict, a lot of um, disagreement. If the government is benefiting and the people are not benefiting, then th that you know raises tension that is not so much about the companies; it's more about the um, the social contract between government and citizens. So, a couple of interesting things. Um, the, the first is that uh, you make a distinction between where the social contract lies, which is to say, uh, the government, which accounts to the people. Uh, but most people, at least in, in my uh, understanding, perceive that if there are no benefit accruing to, say, as you say, the communities, uh, fundamentally it is the fault of the investor. But what you are saying is with resource nationalistic policies, government intervention enables uh, processes to be put in place such that 
benefits would accrue and that it really is the responsibility of the state to ensure that. Uh, am, is, is, am I understanding you correctly? I think so, yeah. Fundamentally, I would say it is the responsibility of, of the state to ensure there is a benefit from these resources. I mean, uh, in, in a lot of cases, we're talking about states that um, are, are low in capacity. And uh, we're talking about investors that are very large uh, and powerful companies. And so there is this tendency to expect these companies to, you know, uh, invest, have a lot of social investment to pay a, a great deal of attention to their corporate responsibility. And I think that's positive, but it doesn't abrogate the responsibility that I think belongs to government. And uh, government can express this, uh, you know, this, uh, this desire to have more of a benefit in positive ways, and it can express it in negative ways when, when you know, it's when really the state has been captured by a political party or by a group of elites that are are, are rent-seeking in themselves. But um, I, I like to focus on the, the, the positive potential of resource nationalism. I like to focus on resource nationalism as it's articulated in communities that are hosting this extraction. And, and uh, what, when they are saying, well, we want to benefit from this resource because it is ours, you know, I think that's uh, something that we all need to listen to. In, in the, the uh, studies that you've conducted, do you have a particular case that stands out, uh, which in your opinion is representative of a well-functioning and healthy uh, tripartite arrangement in which uh, you could say, uh, these benefits are shared equitably and that the government performs uh, reasonably its uh, uh, responsibility as the agent of citizens. Yeah, I mean, there are cases uh, in the African uh, context as well. I mean, you know, Botswana is often given as an example of a successful case of resource nationalism, but I, you know, know better than to talk to you about Botswana. So uh, I think maybe someone else needs to come on your show and interview you about that one. Uh, but I could use Canada, uh, my own country, as, as an example, because I mean, Canada is a wealthy country, but compared to other G7 and G20 countries, uh, its economy is much more oriented towards natural resources. And, uh, you know, industrialization in Canada happened after industrialization in the United States. And in order to make sure that we would be able to develop our own industries and our own comparative advantages in the late 19th century, we used trade protectionism. You know, we had this enormous neighbor, the U.S., right on our border, already more industrialized than us. And we never would have industrialized in any other way. And we still have a lot of trade protections in sectors that are strategically important to us. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in agriculture, uh, all wealthy countries have trade protection in agriculture because we just say that, you know, this is it. This is in our national interest. And um, so there is a tripartite uh, uh, arrangement between government, the, the, uh, the private sector and uh, civil society organizations uh, um, working on the ground in, in, you know, various parts of the country. Um, but largely government bears the responsibility 
for for ensuring that we uh, we benefit from our natural resources. Do you think, uh, Jesse? Uh, and and you are right that Canada is a is a is, is a, a big mining country, but it also is a country that uh, borders Big Brother uh, southwards of itself, uh, which is the mm -hmm. United States. And so I was wondering, do you think uh, it matters whether or not these companies are indigenous to Canada versus uh, companies that are essentially foreign, say to Nigeria or to Botswana? I mean, does resource nationalism change in its manifestation depending on the citizenry of the corporations about which uh, we are speaking and the corporations over which the government has oversight. It, it might matter a little bit whether the countries are uh, companies are foreign or domestic. Sometimes Canada acts to block foreign investment and protect strategic uh, industries in the national interest. But from a development perspective, I'm not sure that it matters that much. It's uh, it's not really about whether the investment comes from within our borders or outside of it. Uh, what's more important is that that investment is accompanied by investment in infrastructure, that it is accompanied by, um, you know, taxes that are, uh, you know, going into the benefit, uh, going into the public coffers, benefiting citizens. Um, and it, it matters whether these companies are acting in, in responsible ways to mitigate the, uh, the negative impacts, whether they're employing locals, those are the things that I think matter the most uh, when it comes to um, Canadian natural resource uh, production. So that is interesting because uh, I'm sure you will have uh, often heard this, that at least in emerging market countries, whether it's Latin America, Africa, or South Asia, uh, the tendency is to make reference to these foreign uh, investors as if the foreign element is uh, the factor that makes the difference what and 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 that this particularly is used a lot as part of uh, political uh, uh, and policy discourse uh, you know do you think that by so doing uh, governments therefore miss the point by obsessing over whether they are foreign or citizen because the assumption is that if they were uh, corporations bred uh, in these uh, emerging markets that somehow they would behave differently. Do you think that uh, that case is overstated? Yeah, I think that's correct. You know, I mean, we, um, we do have companies that are domestic companies that are, are not necessarily the most responsible actors in, in Canada. And um, I think we were talking about Nigeria earlier it'll be very interesting to see with uh, indigenous oil companies uh, whether they actually are better actors and whether they're, um, you know, whether they actually are more developmental for citizens in, in Nigeria. And it, I think what will happen if citizens don't perceive that there is sufficient benefit is they will, you know, uh, kick up against these domestic companies as well. And to me, that would still be an expression of resource nationalism that you know these are our resources this is the community speaking these are our resources not anybody else's and we need to benefit from them they, that can still be an expression of resource nationalism even if the com company 
involved is is a domestic one. So, so when you did look at uh, uh, the Nigerian situation, because I know that uh, ten or so years ago, uh, the government of Nigeria facilitated uh, transfer of ownership of certain upstream, uh, you know, oil and gas companies to citizens. It, you know, did you get a chance to look at how? Recess nationalistic uh, policies were applied to these Nigerian firms relative to the likes of Shell and others that were clearly uh, international oil companies, albeit uh, resident in uh, Nigeria. Um, I do know that the that these domestic firms in Nigeria and in Angola and other countries I study um, have been given a lot of uh, uh, tax incentives, ta you know, breaks from, from the government to, to help them be profitable. And in, in the short term, I think that is uh, acceptable because, you know, you want to encourage a domestic uh, industry to develop. You want to uh, allow them to build some sort of comparative advantage. You can subsidize them but you can only subsidize them for so long. They have to uh, be able to become profitable on their own and they have to be able to deliver a benefit to all stakeholders on their own within a, a short amount of time. And I think there's a need for more research uh, in both Nigeria and Angola to see whether that has uh, come about, whether that's been the case. I, I don't think it's entirely clear that these domestic companies have uh, delivered any greater benefit than foreign companies. The benefit may be staying in the country uh, longer, although you know, the, eventually that profit, if it is a Nigerian elite or an Angolan elite that um, is benefiting, is going to uh, wind up going abroad anyway, right? So uh, the important thing is to see whether there is more employment, whether there is more economic activity happening country. And uh, aside from those things, is there reinvestment in the community? Are they, you know, are they, are they um, giving opportunities to, to uh, the community members to, uh, you know, improve their livelihoods? And uh, I, I don't think we have a good answer to that yet. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I'm inclined to think you're right, because my sense is that once we move from uh, well, let me put it another way. Once we dwell on who owns rather than what is the mineral or petroleum resource value and how should that translate to benefits to communities and citizens, once we, we move from that, my, my sense is that we move from the economics of mineral or petroleum development to the politics of uh, nationhood. And, and uh, you know, while the sense of nationhood and patriotism may generate a, a feel-good factor, it really doesn't translate necessarily in this case into economic and tangible benefits. And, and, and I have a little discomfort, Jesse, with the prospects that the state may act as an agent for an elite in the first place, which is already an advantage. And then as if that's not enough, uh, 
through facilitation of equity, then say, oh, now that you own this company, we'll cut you a little slack. You won't pay tax or, or, or whatever, or you won't have to comply with local content quotas uh, for another couple of years. Because the moral question one must ask is, what of the other citizens uh, that are looking to this resource to benefit? What becomes of them while the elite shareholders uh, are still uh, settling uh, their financial, uh, you know, capacity to own uh, this equity. I, I wonder whether you have any thoughts on that research or the absence of it notwithstanding. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think what we could probably say is that the most genuine expression of resource nationalism is the expression of resource nationalism from a community impacted by uh, oil, gas, or mining, and uh, and requesting that uh, not that these activities go away. Usually, in my experience, that's not what is being demanded. Their their um, uh, demand is that they benefit, that there be a more fair distribution of the wealth generated by these industries. And uh, so, what I would uh, like to encourage is for those, uh, for all stakeholders to listen to those voices. And, uh, and, and that form of resource nationalism should be viewed as very separate from uh, a government, you know, acting in its own self-interest, uh, expressing a desire for greater rents, or as you say, offering, you know, uh, tax benefits to, to local elite. Um, we really need to make sure that these benefit that these minerals are benefiting those people on the ground, and if it's really if it's not possible to do that, then the extraction shouldn't take place. Yeah, I'm reminded that when the the Nigerian entrepreneurs, the, those specific ones, uh, uh, about a decade or so ago, acquired uh, these shares, that uh, there was uh, a bit of a, a surprise that. Uh, the equity was essentially transferred from foreign uh, entities who had been paid tax uh, into the hands of uh, some citizens. And that with that instance, uh, the government and the communities, at least in the context of those companies, were immediately worse off. So my sense is that uh, you focus largely on uh, communities around uh, mineral and oil projects. Uh, and if that is so, what of the rest of uh, the citizens, given that, you know, national governments speak for the entire citizenry and not a select few, are, are, are we not uh, uh, in current favor, if you wish, with uh, the communities doing it at the expense of uh, the rest of the population the same way that we might if we favor the elite? Yeah, that's a that's definitely a concern, and and uh, we have to be careful about that. My my view is that uh, any group that sees some benefit occurring and feeling like they should have a share of it, and they are not having a share of it, they're going to express this sort of uh, very you know um, genuine resource nationalist um, um, uh, concern with that situation. And so you can see that uh, just with citizens of a country, if they feel the benefit is uh, not going to them uh, at all, 
And you see that in communities that are that are hosting the extractions. And then those are both expressions of resource nationalism. And a government has a difficult job in trying to balance uh, and ensuring all these different stakeholders, including the private companies, are are, are benefiting, and that that the wealth generated by this industry is being fairly distributed. And uh, I guess civil society's role in this is to advocate especially because there are power asymmetries between these groups. Civil society needs to advocate uh, on behalf of those who uh, have the least amount of power to ensure that they are getting some benefit. And, and you're right, sometimes that is not the, um, the host community. Sometimes that's the nation as a whole that needs to make sure there is a benefit being distributed uh, uh, around the country. So, so in other words, really, it is largely situational. One has to take a step back, assess the circumstances and say, you know, in the big scheme of things and given the diversity of stakeholders, uh, is there a level playing field? And if it is not, it is then that the, the voice of civil society must rise to ensure that that balance is struck. Yes, in not just, you know, NGOs, uh, but labor unions, journalists, community organizers, they all have a role to play in making sure that these resources are, are uh, benefiting all citizens in the country. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Jesse, thank you very much for your time and I appreciate you taking time to speak to the Sheila Karma Extractive Podcast. It was lovely speaking with you. Thanks for having me back. It was, it was great speaking to you too. Thank you.